0: An apparent Israeli airstrike in Lebanon has killed the number two leader of Hamas, heightening the risk of a wider conflict. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. This is W.B. morning edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, reaction to the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay. Her allies believe race was a factor.
1: There's a lot of university presidents, and none of them came under the scrutiny she did. Of course, a lot of that's because she was the first black president at Harvard.
0: Also, how the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol nearly three years ago has changed American politics. And this hour.
2: I just don't know how you tastefully immortalize an aborted fetus.
0: Questions on how to move forward with the so-called Monument to the Unborn, a memorial plan for the state capitol grounds in Arkansas. Bruins win, Celtics lose. Clouds will give way to some sun today in the 40s. It's 7.01, now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The day after the killing of a top Hamas leader in Lebanon, Israel has not claimed responsibility for it. Lebanese leaders are warning the assassination could widen the East War beyond Gaza. The Iranian-backed militant group Hezbollah is based in Lebanon. There's fear any escalation of the war to Lebanon could involve Iran. Lawyers for Donald Trump have appealed the main decision removing his name from the state's Republican presidential primary ballot. They say Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows was wrong to reach that conclusion. Bellows says she based her decision on the U.S. Constitution and on Trump's actions around January 6th.
4: I reviewed the weight of the evidence in the hearing and made the determination that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does apply to the president and that the events of January 6th were not only tragic, uh, but qualified as an insurrection and happened at the behest of and with the knowledge and support of the outgoing president.
3: The Colorado Supreme Court also removed Trump's name from that state's ballot. That's also being appealed by the state GOP and likely the former president. House Speaker Mike Johnson is in Texas. He is scheduled to lead a large group of House Republicans on a visit to the Southern U.S. border today. NPR's Giles Snyder has more.
5: Speaker Johnson is at the head of some 60 House Republicans who are expected to accompany him to the border at Eagle Pass, which is in Republican Texas Congressman Tony Gonzalez's district. The visit of the border will be Johnson's first as speaker and comes as Senate negotiators are hashing out a deal that links changes in border policy as a condition for further aid for Ukraine. The bipartisan group of senators had hoped to clinch a deal last month. Instead, they've been at it for weeks, working through the holidays. Johnson's visit comes a day before authorities say they will reopen four border crossings that had been forced to close because of a surge in migrants, including the International Bridge at Eagle Pass. Kyle Snyder, NPR News.
3: California now offers health insurance to low-income immigrants who are in the United States illegally. Jackie Fortier with LAist reports this is the latest in the expansion of California's Medicaid program.
6: Starting January 1st, all undocumented immigrants, regardless of age, will qualify for Medi-Cal, California's version of the federal Medicaid program for people with low incomes. Previously, undocumented immigrants were not qualified to receive comprehensive health insurance, but were allowed to receive emergency and pregnancy-related services under Medi-Cal as long as they met eligibility requirements. Researchers say about 1 million unauthorized immigrants will remain uninsured after the expansion because they make too much money to qualify qualify for Medi-Cal. People who are undocumented are barred from buying insurance through the marketplace under the Affordable Care Act. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles.
3: You're listening to NPR News from Washington. A state court in Wisconsin has ruled on state absentee ballots. The court says election clerks can accept absentee ballots with certain minor errors. A ruling in 2022 had blocked the Wisconsin election clerks from using longstanding guidance to fix minor errors. And Wisconsin voters couldn't always fix their absentee ballots or get their votes counted. The Iowa caucuses are set for January 15th. The New Hampshire primary election is in less than three weeks. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman reports Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is working to persuade voters to support her.
7: Republican candidates are working diners and country club ballrooms, seeking to gain momentum in the final days leading up to the primaries. Former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley is in the midst of her latest swing through New Hampshire. Her stump speech stresses her foreign policy experience, but also takes aim at Joe Biden and Donald Trump, who she argues have both brought havoc to the White House, weakening America.
8: And we can't be a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos because we won't survive it.
7: Haley has been endorsed by New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu and is gaining ground in local polls, but still trails Trump. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman.
3: The Treasury Department says the U.S. gross national debt is now greater than $34 trillion. This is a record high. The news comes as Congress will try to pass new spending bills, Congress's first deadline is January 19th. If no spending bills pass, the federal government will partially
0: shut down. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoy. This is WBUR in Boston. Harvard's longtime provost will lead the school until it finds a new leader. Claudine Gay announced her resignation as president yesterday. She faced pressure from donors and right-wing lawmakers over her response to claims of anti-Semitism on campus. She also faced accusations of plagiarism in her academic work. Harvard professor Stephen Levitsky wrote a letter signed by hundreds of faculty last month expressing their support for Gay. He says discussions about her position should have been dealt with internally.
2: We need to have conversations about free speech. We need to have conversations about the Israel-Palestine issue. We also need to reestablish a norm of defending the university's autonomy from politicized attacks from without.
0: Gay intends to remain at Harvard as a faculty member. Provost Alan Garber will serve as interim president. A new report shows the state expects to spend more than $900 million on the family shelter system by the end of June. When lawmakers infused more funds into the system late last year, they also required the Healy administration to submit reports every two weeks. W.B. Wars Gabriella Emanuel has more on the latest report.
9: The report shows 3,500 families in the shelter system are migrants, refugees, or asylum seekers. That's just under half the shelter population. In mid-November, the state declared the system at capacity and created a wait list. There are now nearly 400 families on that list. Kelly Turley with the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless says the wait list numbers should be made public daily. We've asked for it to be added to the dashboard. That's a
10: public space where anybody could see it without having to know the right person to
9: contact in state government. The state has not done that. It has opened several overflow temporary shelters, but advocates say demand is outstripping supply. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel.
0: Closures on the Green Line pick back up today. There will be no service between Kenmore Square and North Station. On the E branch, the closure extends to Heath Street. On the B branch, it goes to Babcock Street. The closures will last until January 12th and pick up again on the 16th. It's
5: 7:08. WBUR supporters include Better Help, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
0: The Bruins beat the Blue Jackets 4-1 last night in Columbus. That makes it four wins in a row for Boston. The Bees will return home tomorrow to play the Pittsburgh Penguins. The Celtics fell to the Thunder 127-123 in Oklahoma City. They'll be back at the Garden on Friday to play the Utah Jazz. A cloudy start today, but we'll get more sun by this afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. Clouds move back in overnight. It'll be in the 20s. Cloudy tomorrow and back to the 40s. And we're keeping an eye on a potential snowstorm this weekend. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to War.
9: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C.
7: In a May Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Harvard's first black president is stepping down after six months in the job. Claudine Gay resigned in the wake of a congressional appearance with other university presidents that was sharply criticized for the response she gave to questions about anti-Semitism on campus. She had also been accused of plagiarism, although Harvard said the instances do not meet the bar for misconduct according to its own rules. Randall Kennedy is a professor at Harvard Law School and author of numerous books on race in America. Professor Kennedy, what do you make of the chain of events that has led to the resignation of Claudine Gay?
11: Um, This is a very sad day for uh, Harvard University and indeed for all of higher education in the United States. I'm uh, appalled that uh, Harvard, my employer, was uh, unsuccessful in defending itself against an obvious, but effective smear on a variety of uh, dimensions. The the university has been the, the victim of um, misleading uh, allegations, and it has cost uh, Claudine Gay her job.
7: What are the misleading allegations?
11: There are many. Number one, uh, the claim that uh, Claudine Gay was indifferent to or even encouraging of uh, anti Semitism. She said over and over and over again that she finds any anti Semitism to be uh, abhorrent. Uh, another claim was that uh, Harvard University is awash, is suffused with anti Semitism. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, the claim of um, uh, I guess most recently, uh, Claudine Gay's enemies have been uh, successful in making a uh, mountain out of a molehill with regard to the claims of uh, the allegations of, uh, of plagiarism. So, you... so this was a, this was a very effective this was a very effective cultural hit, uh, but that's really all that it is.
7: So you say making a mountain out of a molehill. What um... yes. What is the molehill? At least, I mean, it...
11: the, the the molehill would be instances. By the way, in the distant past, of um, uh, a certain amount of sloppiness. I think that one could uh, w- one might make that claim with respect to the way in which she handled some of her writing. Uh, but but it was altogether trivial, and uh, her enemies. Have succeeded in elevating this triviality uh, into the, um, uh, in, in, and making it tantamount to some big uh, academic uh, felony.
7: Shouldn't the president of Harvard, though, professor, not have these molehills, or at least we should know about them?
12: Not
11: uh, find out would,
7: about them the way we have.
11: Well, it would certainly be better if one having a long career did everything perfectly. I'm not making the claim that uh, there's nothing to complain about with respect to the long career of uh, uh, Claudine Gay, but nothing that, has, nothing that she has done uh, warranted uh, her ouster. And what's really terrible about this situation is that demagogues, who, by the way, were very open in what they were attempting to do, uh, have succeeded in uh, smearing and in ousting uh this president uh why uh clearly for ideological reasons this 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 other stuff is largely trumped up
7: what could the university have done better then, in your opinion to fight back
11: oh i think that the university should have been much more decisive uh much more open much more aggressive in uh telling the public the truth about things. So for one thing, uh, again, going back to the anti-Semitism claim, uh, Harvard University uh, is not suffused with uh, anti-Semitism. That is an absolutely ridiculous claim. Are, are you going to tell me that the former president of uh, the, the, the university, himself Jewish, was riding over an institution uh, in which uh, anti-Semitism was uh, running uh, amok, that's simply not true. And, and the leaders of the university should have been much louder in correcting that misimpression, Could, just, like they should, mm-hmm. just like they should have been much louder in correcting the misimpression that Claudine Gay was somehow soft on anti-Semitism. Is she there anything? Not.
7: Is there anything Claudine Gay could have handled better in her congressional appearance?
11: Uh, yes, I think that Claudine Gay actually should have been uh, much more forceful in her reaction to the demagogues that she was facing. Uh, I, I fault her. I fault her if I'm going to find fault for being all too diffident uh, and you know all too passive. Uh, in response to what was an obvious attack.
7: Randall Kennedy is a professor at Harvard Law School. Professor, thank you.
11: Thank you.
9: The national debt now tops $34 trillion, a record high. So how worried should we be? That seems to depend on which economist you ask. Joining us now is Stephanie Kelton. She's a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and she served as a senior economic advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns. Uh, she's also a proponent of modern monetary theory or MMT, which argues that since the U.S. prints its own currency It can't run run out of money like a household or a business can welcome to
13: the program Thank you for having me. So 34
9: trillion dollars in debt sounds scary. Should people be afraid?
13: No, they shouldn't um, it's the word debt that makes people afraid and so when I think about this You know, I look at this number and I think, well, it's just keeping track of our savings. That's what it's really recording. Mm -hmm. So over the arc of U.S. history, the U.S. government typically spends on an annual basis more dollars into the economy than it taxes away from us. And so it's adding dollars. And over time, we keep track of how many dollars have been added. And what that 34 trillion is telling you is that over the long sweep of history, the U.S. government has put that many dollars into our hands without taxing them away. So what it is, is it's our after-tax savings that's being reported. So when you think about it like that, it really does kind of change your perspective. You say, well, should I be very worried about this large savings that has been accumulated? And I think that that leads us in a very different direction. Mm, but we often hear politicians, especially
9: Republicans, compare the national budget to a household budget, as in the government should only spend the cash that it has. Is that a fair comparison? I mean, I know in your view, it's very different.
13: Well, it is very different, and if they did that, then, of course, the rest of us couldn't accumulate any surplus. We wouldn't have that savings. If the government always took back exactly the amount that it put in, then by definition, the rest of us wouldn't end up with any extra dollars to hold on to as part of our wealth, as part of our savings. So the big mistake here is in thinking of the federal government the way we think of an individual I know our Mm. personal finances or an individual household. They're nothing like one another. The federal government is the issuer of the currency and the rest of us are users of the U.S. dollar. We actually have to go out and get it in order to be able to spend it. The federal government has to spend it before the rest of us can get it and either have it available to buy goods and services in the economy, to pay taxes, to buy government bonds, or to save.
9: But there are risks, right, associated with grow- the growing national debt. In November financial firm Moody's lowered its outlook on U.S. debt from stable to negative. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen disagreed with that decision, but acknowledged that current economic circumstances could make the federal debt less sustainable. I mean, what are the risks associated with the growing national debt?
13: Well, they're not economic and they're not financial. And in the downgrade, I think, you know, the rating agencies have made clear over time that, you know, what they're thinking about is not the federal government's ability to pay, because that is unquestioned. When you are the issuer of the currency of course you can never run out you can't be forced into a situation where you cannot afford to make the payments to meet the obligations Um, but you could become unwilling to pay and so what the rating agency is kind of keying in on here is the, you know, political dysfunction where you have Congress periodically threatening to default, playing around with the debt ceiling limit and saying things like, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad after all if, you know, we we didn't raise the debt ceiling limit and we actually missed a few payments. Of course, it would be bad. It would be catastrophic, which is why we never do it. Um but it does uh, make the rating agencies concerned and rightly so. And yeah. they are warning financial uh, markets and investors that, you know, there are reasons to to maybe, um, you know, raise some concerns with respect to the government's willingness, not ability to pay, but its willingness to pay. And that's worth that's worth, you know, commentary. So if there
9: is a scenario, is there a scenario in which the U.S. defaults on its debt like Greece did
13: in 2015? Would that be something more political than economic? It would be entirely political. Remember, what Greece did in 2001 is that it abandoned its currency, which was the drachma, and it joined a number of other countries who had done the same thing, giving up their sovereign currencies and joining the economic and monetary union, the euro project. So Greece started borrowing in a currency that it can't issue. And so along with Italy and Spain and Portugal and the rest of these countries, there is legitimate default risk, but not here in the U.S. I'm going to have to leave it there. I'm so sorry.
9: That's Stephanie Kelton, professor at Stony Brook University and author of The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we're days away from the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. We'll look at how those events that day have changed American politics. It's 720.
14: I'm Robin Young. Colorado Republicans were the ones who filed suit to get former President Trump excluded from that ballot. Lead plaintiff Norma Anderson will join us to explain why she believes her party's leading candidate does not deserve to be president. She says, among other things, Trump is too close to Russia's Putin. That's next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly
0: cloudy skies will gradually clear for a sunny afternoon today. Highs will be in the low 40s. Clouds move back in tonight as temperatures fall to a low around 30. A similar day tomorrow, overcast skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with highs in the low
15: 40s. It's 31
0: degrees in Boston.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
16: I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. Every day, we make small choices to improve our mood, like picking our favorite outfit in the morning or eating the foods we like. For people in prison, though, even the smallest choices are taken away. K.C. Johnson, who uses they, them pronouns, couldn't pick the music they listen to.
17: Just have AM, FM radios. You know, most radio stations play the top 40 of each genre.
16: But for the past seven years, state prisons across the United States have been issuing tablets similar to iPads to incarcerated people, which means that K.C. can now choose their music.
17: It was a lifesaver. It was the most wonderful thing. My mom actually passed. Two months after we got these tablets, she and I like to listen to blues a lot. Woo! So I could find music that really reminded me of her, of home, of everything else, not on the radio.
18: My mother's gonna be the greatest man alive.
16: We wanted to know more about the role music plays in the lives of incarcerated people, so we called a few. The connection was not always the best, so bear with us. Here's Joe Garcia. He is currently at High Desert Prison in California.
2: All throughout my day, day to day, you see guys walking around with headphones on, with earbuds in, singing along to whatever they're listening to. They'll be reciting their own type of rap lyrics. They'll be in circles, comparing things. You
11: used to call me on my... my name is Jeffrey Sackley,
2: and you I'm currently in the, the to... in the State Coruscant
19: Institution in Southwestern Pennsylvania. They will yeah. speak about, oh,
2: this Drake is the greatest artist, or no, no, you have oh, from... oh, Coolie G. What, back in the day, you have conversations like that.
11: And I know when the can only mean one thing.
2: In my previous life, I was sort of misanthropic, like I just was, did not like a lot of people. And so music is one facet of me trying to open my heart and really appreciate people for who they are and just look at the humanity. And I really do see that a lot in other incarcerated guys. Bach, Beethoven Chopin and you just listen to it like before you going to bed and whatever went through whatever was going on in that day my mind just gets to float to somewhere else and it really reminds me of sort of the innocent person I was before I went down the path of criminality and got into drugs and all those type of Pitfalls that so many of us go through.
12: I'm not a
9: princess, this ain't a fairy tale.
2: The thing that really got me about Taylor Swift's lyrics is I'm like just totally in love with the woman I left behind when I got locked up.
9: Now it's too late for you and your white horse
12: to come around.
2: I kind of interpret White Horse my own way. The woman I love is like my knight in shining armor. Like the fairy tale romance of it all takes me back to a much more idyllic time and kind of keeps me focused on recapturing that type of sentiment as I go forward in life.
12: It's too late. To catch me.
17: We definitely talk about the artists we like and concerts we want to go to. Lovely states in three years. Live music and festivals and concerts. That's what I'm really, really looking forward to. Uh, The last concert was probably Velvet
12: Revolver in 2004. So, so you, you can tell.
17: I feel like going to something like that, it will still be like it was when I was younger. Or I hope it is. Everybody's getting along. Everybody's in it together. Hearing a song is one way for me to go back to my past life. And relive good memories. Even when I get out the songs that I've... Listen to and hear will remind me of my strength and endurance and everything that got me through. It's very important. It's a powerful tool. Music
16: is. That was Casey Johnson, Joe Garcia and Jeff Shockley. All three of them have been convicted of murder. Garcia is serving a life sentence and is eligible for parole this year. Shockley is also serving a life sentence and has not been granted parole. They are all part of the Prison Journalism Project. That's a nonprofit that gives incarcerated people a voice through journalism.
12: How I wish, how I wish you were
9: here. It didn't take long to turn Mickey Mouse into a homicidal maniac. An early version of the famous cartoon character entered the public domain on Monday, and already there's a trailer out for a new horror movie called Mickey's Mousetrap.
20: There's blood all over the jungle gym. Tina, turn around, please,
7: Gina! Even the world's most famous mouse is not safe from an expired copyright. Timothy Lee is a journalist who's written about copyrights in public domain. He says copyright law is actually spelled out in the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. Congress yourself have the power to promote the progress of
21: science and the useful arts by securing to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their writings and discoveries.
9: The Constitution's authors specified the copyright should last for 28 years, but that law was extended and revised several times in the last century.
7: Which is why you're only recently starting to see some famous old characters with brand new lives. Netflix, for example, put Sherlock Holmes and his sister into a new series.
22: My name is
8: Enola Holmes. I started a detective agency.
9: And while the descendants of some creators argue for extending copyrights, Lee says he'd like to see works enter the public domain faster.
21: I think it would be better to have shorter copyright terms. And I don't necessarily think people should be able to control what happens, like, long after they're dead.
7: But are you ever really dead if your work lives on as a horror movie villain? This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBR's Morning Edition. Fallout from a controversial border crackdown in Texas that has wrongfully targeted some U.S. citizens. We'll hear from one family in El Paso seeking accountability and justice. It's 7.29.
23: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. At least four people are dead, dozens injured, after hundreds of Russian drones and missiles bombarded Ukraine's biggest cities overnight. President Volodymyr Zelensky.
24: This is absolutely conscious terror. In just a few days, these last days, from December the 29th until today, Russia has already used almost 300 missiles and more than 200 drones against Ukraine. No other country has so far repelled similar attacks by combined drones and missiles.
23: Heard there through a BBC interpreter. A civil trial is underway in New York that could transform the NRA. New York Attorney General Letitia James is hoping to oust longtime NRA leader Wayne LaPierre on corruption charges. He denies any wrongdoing. And here's Brian Mann says the suit filed in 2020 has already set back the
25: NRA. They've lost millions of members. The NRA shut down their juggernaut media operation, even attempted once to file for bankruptcy. And LaPierre, who's 74 years old now, you know, he used to be a really high-profile player in American politics, courted by presidents, and his personal influence has clearly waned because of all of this.
23: And Pierce Brian Mann reporting. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. Dow futures are down about two-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down just over a half percent. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is War in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Longtime Cambridge City Councillor E. Denise Simmons is the city's new mayor. She was elected to the post by her fellow councillors this week. Simmons previously served terms as mayor in both 2008 and 2016. She replaces Sumbo Siddiqui, who was accused of creating a toxic workplace during her tenure as mayor. Siddiqui was re-elected to the council. Massachusetts and Maine plan to use more than $27 million in public funding to protect endangered right whales. In Massachusetts, the money will be used to develop new fishing gear that prevents whales from getting entangled. In Maine, the money will be used for data collection. There are fewer than 360 of the endangered whales left. Much of the population has been lost after getting caught in fishing gear. More than 300 people need to reschedule in vitro fertilization services after a water main break at Brigham and Women's Hospital. The break on Christmas Eve damaged the walls of the IVF clinic. Hospital officials tell the Boston Globe the frozen embryos and eggs are safe and were not damaged. They say the storage tanks won't be open for about a month until after repairs are made to the facility. This is the second time in a decade that the clinic has flooded. Each summer New Bedford's waterfront is transformed by temporary art installations. As WB Wars Ariel Gray reports, artists are now invited to submit new art proposals this year. The Seaport Art
15: Walk was founded in 2013 by Jessica Brigoli. The outdoor art project highlights new and exciting work that considers topics like social justice and the environment. This year's theme is Call of the Sea.
17: We hope that this 2024 show would celebrate the transformative power of music as a timeless tool for healing and a conduit for conversation.
15: For the first time, artists are encouraged to incorporate sound into the proposals. The deadline to submit is February 23rd. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray.
0: It's 733.
13: WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The
0: Celtics' six-game winning streak ended last night in Oklahoma City. They lost to the Thunder 127-123. The Seas return home Friday to play the Utah Jazz. The Bruins topped the Columbus Blue Jackets 4-1 last night in Ohio. The Bees will host the Pittsburgh Penguins tomorrow. And Boston's new women's hockey team takes the ice for the first time tonight. They'll host Minnesota at the Saugus Center in Lowell. Mostly cloudy this morning, but skies will slowly clear for a sunny afternoon. We'll have highs in the low 40s. It grows overcast again tonight, and temperatures will be around 30. Skies gradually clear tomorrow morning, and we'll eventually have a mostly sunny day with highs back in the low 40s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's
9: morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C.
7: And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Saturday will mark three years since the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Ah! This year we'll see the first presidential election since that day and all that's unfolded with former President Donald Trump seeking the White House one more time. So three years later, what has the effect been on our politics to try and answer that we bring in NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro Domenico. So do we know how people view the attack on the Capitol now now three years later? I mean, have views
26: changed? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those moments, you know, that many of us witnessed, saw on TV, didn't think it was really possible to have hugely divergent views. Um, But maybe that was naive, given our politics and how divisive everything seems to be. Um, You know, for Democrats, democracy has risen to the top of their most pressing concerns in these past three years because that day did fundamentally represent an attack on the process of the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, it was one of those, I remember where I was moments. I mean, I was just sitting in the studio watching it
7: unfold. Now, many Republicans, though, I, I would imagine, Domenico, see this very, very differently. And we got some new data on that this week.
26: Yeah, there was a new Washington Post University of Maryland poll out that found fewer Republicans now than in 2021 would describe the protesters who were there that day as mostly violent. Uh, Just 18% of Republicans say that now compared to 26% in 2021, which, you know, was still pretty low, uh, you know, compared to independents and Democrats, half of independents and three quarters of Democrats said that uh, those who were there that day were mostly violent as compared to mostly peaceful. And fewer Republicans now say that Trump bears responsibility for the attack compared with 2021, which is pretty striking. So what do you think that says? Well, I mean, after three years of a pitched Trump public relations battle, he's clearly convinced his base, you know, that he's not responsible for what happened that day and that it's been blown out of proportion. He's done it with the help of a conservative media echo chamber and a lot of Republican leaders on a whole host of things. I mean, it's why you see people like House Speaker Mike Johnson uh, asking for all the video from January 6th to be released, which is only feeding conspiracy theories. Um, and it's why you have Republican presidential candidates who are trying to beat Trump for the job, making excuses about his conduct. You know, beyond that, they've all rallied around him when it comes to his multiple criminal indictments, and it just all leads to a larger picture of an aggrieved and besieged figurehead, which Trump, of course, has turned into political fuel from the beginning of his political rise. You
7: know, Domenico, now that it's 2024, I can actually hear the countdown clock to the election. (laughs) I mean, it it feels tangible, like it's right in front of me. Um, And Republican voters are going to cast their first ballots in less than two weeks in Iowa. Now,
26: if they're all just kind of lining up and rallying around Donald Trump, I mean, what could it mean for the upcoming election? I mean, it's all really helped make Trump the man to Beat in this Republican primary. I mean, he's 20, 30 points ahead in most polls. Um, And, you know, what people should understand is that partisan views only harden in a presidential election year. You know, people might forget Hillary Clinton when she was Obama's Secretary of State had favorability ratings in the 60s. Certainly that was not the case when it was clear she would become the Democratic nominee. Uh, People really retreat to their corners. Candidates' policy positions become sort of caricatures. Um, you know, and views of Trump certainly haven't changed much. And if he loses in 2024, he'd probably say again that the election was stolen, certainly laying the groundwork for that. Yet, Trump has been able to insulate himself with his base because Biden is unpopular. People eyeing third parties. Trump has a realistic chance of not only being the nominee but winning again, which many people probably didn't think was possible after January 6th. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks a lot. You're welcome.
9: Amid Israel's war on Hamas and the dangers of life under bombardment in Gaza, one man is trying to continue making art. He's among the nearly two million Palestinians who've been displaced. And like so many, he is now living in the very crowded southern town of Rafah on the Egyptian border. NPR's Nina Kravinsky brings us his story with the help of NPR producer Anas Baba in Rafah.
27: Basel Almacusi's house in the northern city of Beit Lahia was destroyed on the second day of the war. He knows this because his neighbor texted him a picture on October 8th of the destruction. He and his family had just fled. Since then, his family's been displaced and lives in a tent. He's created makeshift rooms by hanging blankets from the ceiling, one with the FC Barcelona logo, as noted by NPR producer Anas Baba.
28: Maybe he's a Real Madrid, maybe he's a Barcelona fan, but... What we do know here is one thing. That this man, even
18: inside of his tent, is an artist.
27: Seated on a black mat on the ground, Al-Makusi paints two long human faces side by side in black watercolor.
24: My primary concern is my children and how to provide them with a decent life or at least a part of the life I wished for them. But I found that my soul is still attached to art.
27: Attached to art even as he wakes up at dawn to line up with hundreds of others for jugs of water, even in this cramped tent where he lives surrounded by other displaced people. He opens a sketchbook to show more of the art he's created since he's been displaced. Some of his works depict the fear he sees on the faces of the strangers around him. Others show busy, chaotic, more abstract scenes of rubble and airstrikes.
24: My hand would be drawing on paper while my mind was seeing the destroyed houses around Gaza and all these areas. They all merged into one scene in my mind because the destruction of these houses was similar.
27: Back home, al-Makusi has a studio full of his paintings where he and his family sheltered at the beginning of the war. But it's directly next to al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, the site of a massive Israeli military raid and firefights last month. Israel says Hamas uses the hospital and the tunnels beneath it. Al-Makusi suspects his life's work was destroyed in the raid.
24: The biggest problem in our lives as artists, it's not just our homes or our lives that are lost through the destruction of our homes, but also our work.
27: He managed to find sketchbooks in Rafah, and he had brought paints, just a few different colors, most of which he stopped using.
24: When I looked at my painting, I realized that I was deceiving myself because these colors do not reflect the destruction and reality surrounding us.
27: So now he paints and draws in mostly black and gray.
24: In the future, if God grants us life and we continue to live, I can paint them on a larger canvas. But for now, to keep it in my memory, I need to document it in sketches
27: document it because, he says, that's the only way to release the anger he feels about the destruction of his home.
24: I walk on the streets and every face I see is angry. Men, women, young, old, everyone's faces show anger. There is no beauty left to see in Gaza.
27: Reporting with NPR's producer and Rafa, Anas Baba, I'm Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, in Tel Aviv.
9: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBUR. We're keeping you updated on news of what comes next at Harvard, the 2024 presidential election, and the civil trial that could mean the removal of the longtime leader of the NRA. Listen again every morning on your smart speaker and the WBUR app. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's morning edition, the latest on what's known about the killing of a senior Hamas official in Beirut. Sky is gradually clear this morning and will eventually have a sunny day in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight and it'll grow cloudy again. Tomorrow morning, those clouds slowly move out. By afternoon, it'll be mostly sunny and in the low 40s. It's 31
15: degrees in Boston. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Feldman Geospatial, committed to helping Boston build right from the ground up since 1946, and working to build community with Jazz Night, presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Taproom in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com boston.
0: Film and television productions came to a halt for more than three months last year due to the writers' and actors' strikes. WBOR's Solon Kelleher visited New England's go-to prop house to see whether business is back to normal since the strikes ended.
18: It's typically a chaotic scene at Westerman's Props Warehouse in Worcester as set decorators hunt for period furniture or retro appliances. These days, workers have time to organize inventory, hoping for a post-strike rebound that hasn't happened yet.
20: I keep joking with everyone that this is the cleanest they'll ever see Westermans.
18: That's set decorating buyer Megan Gilfoyle. A lot
20: of us are kind of itching to get back to work, but also there's not much going on yet.
18: Gilfoyle and the crew at Westermans don't know when they'll get the next call from a big production, but they've had months to prepare and they're ready. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher.
0: More people stayed in Boston hotels last month than compared to before the pandemic. According to data obtained by the Boston Business Journal, the Boston metro area had occupancy rates of nearly 70 percent. That's compared to 69 percent in 2019. Hospitality officials say those numbers show strength in the Boston market. It's 745.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
9: I'm Leila Fadel,
7: And I'm a. Martinez. An Arkansas bill allowing for a so-called monument to the unborn on Arkansas State Capitol grounds was signed into law last spring. It's intended to memorialize the abortions performed in the state during the nearly 50 years the procedure was legal under Roe v. Wade. But the law doesn't specify what an appropriate memorial would look like. And as Little Rock Public Radio's Josie Lenora reports, this has led to some debate and discomfort over what design to choose for such a public and political piece of art.
4: The memorial is supposed to celebrate the end of legal abortion in the state. Here's Senator Kim Hammer, a Republican lawmaker from the suburbs of Little Rock, giving his pitch for the monument to the Arkansas legislature back in March. It is a monument that is recognizing the
29: 236,243-plus babies that uh, were never born as a result of Roe v. Wade.
4: Hammer says that number, which is also included in the text of the law without citation, comes from the Department of Health. NPR was unable to independently verify. In his speech, Hammer went on to say the monument would be, quote, tastefully done.
2: I just don't know how you tastefully immortalize an aborted fetus.
4: Tony Larraris is on the commission tasked with recommending a final design to the Secretary of State, who will ultimately decide. After the passage, the public was allowed to submit artistic ideas for the monument, which will be funded with private donations, not taxpayer dollars. One proposal is for a marble sarcophagus carved with wombs. Another shows a blindfolded fetus balanced on an umbilical cord pedestal, one of several fetus statue designs. Leraris was uncomfortable with the task his group was given.
2: I was just dumbfounded that we would even consider some of those monuments on our Capitol.
4: At a December meeting, the commission decided to pair two of the submissions, a living wall of greenery and a plaque with quotes from the Bible and the Arkansas Constitution.
6: I'll never forget the day that we passed the trigger bill here in Arkansas.
4: Republican Representative Mary Bentley, who co-sponsored the monument bill,
6: says it will celebrate the enactment of Arkansas's near-total abortion ban. When we passed that bill, I thought, Lord, I don't know if I'll ever be alive to see the day that we end the slaughter of innocent children in our nation.
4: Bentley said a monument to the unborn will fit in well next to civil rights monuments and memorials for fallen soldiers already on the Capitol grounds a bill to create a monument passed easily. Republicans make up a supermajority in the legislature, meaning their bills almost always become law. Only two Republicans spoke against it. One was Representative Steve Unger, who has advocated against abortion his entire career.
28: From a Christian perspective, this has the look and feel of spiking the football. It looks like gloating. The Jesus that I know who was called friend of sinners never did that.
4: One Democrat also spoke against the bill, Senator Clark Tucker, He noted that not all Arkansans are anti-abortion.
2: This is injecting a contentious political issue to the grounds of the state capitol, and it's doing so in a way that I would have to imagine is going to be very painful for a lot of women who have gotten abortions in the last 50 years.
4: The monument will most likely be placed near a statue of the Ten Commandments and a Confederate war memorial also on the state capitol grounds. It'll be a while before anyone gets to see it, though. The fundraising effort hasn't even started yet. For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora in Little Rock.
7: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 8.20 on WBOR's Morning Edition, you'll hear about experts trying to raise awareness about puffy winter coats that can reduce the effectiveness of children's car seats. We'll look at alternatives to keep kids safe. It's 7.50.
4: Uber is launching a campaign to win over the drivers of London's famous black cabs, who have long waged a war against the ride-hailing app, and many of them still won't be wooed.
30: Waste of money. Waste of money. They can give us double the fears that they're charging, but nobody, nobody. I think one, one guy has
25: signed up for it, and he's being chased out of town.
4: That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
25: Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. An apparent Israeli airstrike in Lebanon has killed a leader of Hamas, raising fears of a larger conflict in the Middle East. Harvard's first black president, Claudine Gay, has resigned after new plagiarism allegations surfaced against her. And thousands of doctors are off the job in Britain today as part of a six-day strike that's set to be the longest in the history of the National Health Service. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
15: WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson. Ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash gradprograms. Low 40s today under
0: cloudy skies that'll gradually clear. Around 30 tonight and the clouds return overnight. Then skies clear tomorrow morning and we'll have a mostly sunny day back in the low 40s. It's 31 degrees in Boston.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
9: And I'm Layla Faldil. Under Governor Greg Abbott's controversial border plan, Operation Lone Star, Texas has installed miles of razor wire, bust tens of thousands of migrants to Democratic-run cities, and pursued hundreds of vehicles they suspect are transporting undocumented migrants. Some U.S. citizens have been accidentally caught up in the governor's crackdown. Now there's worry that under a new Texas law, those car stops will only increase. The law, which takes effect in March, allows any Texas law enforcement officer to arrest people suspected of entering the
8: country illegally. Angela Cocherga of member station KTEP has one family story. The Ayalas, like many El Paso families, routinely visit relatives just across the border in Mexico. Gerardo Ayala says one evening in October, after they cleared customs and immigration, they made their usual drive back to their house on the Texas side.
21: We were coming home, traveling any normal day. With my family, it was four of us in a a Chevy Cruze.
8: His wife, their 13-year-old daughter, and her grandmother were in the car with him on a busy, well-lit road. Suddenly, two unmarked trucks seemed to appear out of nowhere and boxed in his family's compact car.
21: All of a sudden, this vehicle rams us from behind, pushes us into the other vehicle. The other vehicle puts his truck in reverse and actually reverses into us.
8: At first, Ayala says, he thought it was a chain reaction pileup on this busy roadway near the border. The car was damaged, but running. Already shaken, it only got worse for the family. He says at least four men wearing street clothes and tactical vests quickly surrounded the car. They were pointing semi-automatic rifles at them. Alejandra Lopez is Ayala's wife. When they started
9: coming out with their guns, the first thing I did was look back, you know, to my daughter and my mom. I mean, they were the first things that I thought about. I saw her little
15: face scared. I had never seen her face so scared.
8: The Ayala's are U.S. citizens. They say there was no probable cause to pull them over, and certainly none to ram their car and threaten them with guns. It's not clear how often these improper stops happen, The Texas Department of Public Safety has a complaint process but does not specifically track those involving Operation Lone Star. Human rights organizations say they will soon begin training Texans about their rights and how to file profiling and other complaints. The Ayala's 13-year-old daughter, Isabella says the experience has changed her view of law enforcement.
28: It was kind of traumatizing. I don't feel safe anymore because they don't do their job correctly, I'm guessing.
8: The Texas Department of Public Safety, or DPS, has special agents in plain clothes and unmarked vehicles working in the area to break up smuggling rings. Gerardo Ayala says a DPS supervisor that night told him the family car was similar to a vehicle they were tracking.
21: They came in charging. I mean, they look like furious bulls coming at us. As soon as I opened that door and I told them this is just me and my family, their faces just changed drastically.
8: The family wants an apology. Their car repaired and medical expenses covered that include x-rays at a hospital the night they were hit. Ayala says his 67-year-old mother-in-law has lingering back pain. A Texas DPS spokesperson only said that they're looking into the allegation. A new law is set to take effect in Texas that makes crossing the border illegally a state crime. Now more than 50 immigrant and civil rights organizations are raising concerns. They're worried more U.S. citizens of color living on the border will be profiled and improperly stopped, like the Ayalas. Fernando Garcia directs the Border Network for Human Rights. He says the state crackdown is out of control.
2: They need to launch an investigation on the actual consequences of Operation Lostar on migrants dying, of U.S. residents being abused, on waste of money, of our taxpayers' dollars.
8: For their part, the Ayalas are considering hiring a lawyer. Gerardo Ayala says he wants those who targeted his family by mistake held accountable. After his experience, he's deeply worried about the new state law.
21: How is this not going to affect us? It's going to affect every single individual here in the borderland everyone.
8: Ayala says he needs DPS held responsible for the sake of his family and others in this border city where more U.S. citizens could find themselves mistakenly caught up in a Texas law enforcement crackdown. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso.
7: Investigators have yet to determine a motive in a fiery car crash that took place on New Year's Day in Rochester, New York. Police say a driver crashed into another vehicle outside a concert venue, killing himself and two other people. Here's Gino Finelli with WXXI News.
30: The crash happened just before 1 a.m. on January 1st as concertgoers were leaving Kodak Center in the far north of Rochester after a New Year's Eve performance. Rochester Police Chief David Smith said in a press conference on Tuesday that the driver was believed to be 35-year-old Michael Avery. Smith said Avery deliberately sped a rented SUV into a lane of oncoming traffic close to a pedestrian crossing and hit an Uber.
1: This created the chain of events that followed, leading to the death of the two rear-seat passengers of the rideshare vehicle and the injuries of at least nine pedestrians.
30: The SUV had been packed with about a dozen gasoline canisters that exploded on impact eight of the nine pedestrians suffered minor injuries, a nine suffered injuries that police have called life-altering. The two passengers who died in the crash have been identified by police as 28-year-old Justina Hughes and 29-year-old Joshua Orr, who had been attending the concert. While police said Avery is strongly believed to be the driver and officials have been in conversation with his family, his identity has yet to be forensically confirmed. The FBI and Rochester police do not suspect the incident with a terrorist attack. They say Avery had no known connections to any extremist ideology. Police Chief Smith said investigators are still working to piece together
1: a motive. Nothing thus far has been recovered that provides any additional insight into why this occurred. Although the motive behind the crime remains unknown, the conversations we've had with his family so far leads us to believe that Avery may have been suffering from possible undiagnosed mental health issues.
30: According to Smith, Avery arrived in Rochester from his home in Syracuse, about 90 miles away, on December 27th, and checked into a hotel close to the concert venue. He says they have security footage of Avery buying gasoline and gas canisters on December 30th. Authorities continue to comb through items gathered from Avery's car and hotel room. Police Chief Smith said no suicide note has been found. For NPR News, I'm Gino Finelli in Rochester.
7: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
9: And I'm Leila Fadel.
7: I'm On Point Executive Producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM
29: Boston, 92.7 WBUH tisbury and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Lebanon is blaming Israel for an explosion in Beirut that killed a senior Hamas official, raising fears of a widening Middle East conflict. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. This is WB WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, Claudine Gay, Harvard's first black president, has resigned amid plagiarism accusations and criticism of her congressional testimony. Some Harvard staff are expressing concern.
1: Regardless of what you think of the accusations against her around plagiarism, those are all things that need careful debate and careful consideration, and this was certainly not an example of that.
0: Also this hour, the New York corruption trial threatening the longtime leader of the National Rifle Association, plus puffy winter coats may make kids less
6: safe in cars that puffiness will compress during a crash and it introduces additional slack in the child's harness system. Clearing
0: skies today in the 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The State Department is rejecting statements by two Israeli leaders calling for the resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. NPR's Jason DeRose reports from Tel Aviv.
30: Far-right Israeli ministers Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir have said in recent days the Palestinians in Gaza should be resettled outside the enclave. Now, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matt Miller has issued a statement calling that rhetoric inflammatory and irresponsible. Miller says the two ministers should stop immediately. He says the U.S. has been reassured by the Israeli prime minister that resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza does not. Reflect The policy of the Israeli government. The statement goes on to say the U.S. has been clear that Gaza is Palestinian land and will remain Palestinian land. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
3: The leader of the Iranian backed Hezbollah militia is expected to speak later today in Lebanon. This comes a day after a top Hamas leader was assassinated in Lebanon. Israel has not claimed responsibility for this. Hezbollah has previously said it would respond to any assassinations in Lebanon. There's concern that if Hezbollah escalates attacks against Israel, Iran could get involved. New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez is facing corruption allegations. NPR's Giles Snyder says that federal prosecutors have revised their indictment against Menendez, who was accused of using his position to enrich
5: himself. Senator Menendez is not facing any new charges in this latest version of the indictment against him, but it does expand the scope of the allegations. Menendez was initially charged for using his influence to benefit Egypt. Now prosecutors have linked his actions involving Qatar to a real estate deal in New Jersey, accusing him of accepting gold bars, cash, and tickets to a Formula One race.
3: NPR's Giles Snyder prepared that report. Undocumented migrants who were being bused to New York City are now stopping in New Jersey. From member station WNYC, Elizabeth Kim reports New York City's mayor is limiting the arrival of the migrant buses.
9: Eric Adams' executive order, signed last week, was intended to thwart Texas Governor Greg Abbott's campaign of putting migrants on buses to New York City. Modeled after an order in Chicago, it requires charter buses transporting migrants to provide 32 hours' notice to city officials and sets limits on the times and places that buses can arrive. But over the weekend, some bus operators circumvented the rules by dropping off migrants in New Jersey transit hubs. Adams is hoping neighboring cities band together to force Abbott to comply. According to city officials, no migrant buses from Texas have yet complied with the executive order. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Kim
3: in New York. You're listening to NPR News. State media in Iran say at least 20 people have been killed in two explosions in the central city of Kerman. Dozens of people are wounded. The blasts occurred near the burial site of an Iranian general who was killed in a U.S. drone strike four years ago. A federal judge in New York is expected to release documents as early as today, naming more than 150 people associated with convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. He died by suicide in 2019. Authorities allege his sex trafficking ring victimized minors. NPR's Brian Mann reports the court documents
25: could name some of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men. Media reports and prior legal documents have shown Epstein associated with bankers, politicians, and royalty. Epstein's victims claim they had sex with some of these men while underage. New documents set to be released will give a clearer picture of Epstein's connections. The anticipated release is already sparking controversy. New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers suggested in a public appearance that talk show host Jimmy Kimmel might be named in the Epstein documents. In a social media post, Kimmel fired back, saying he had no contact with Epstein and threatening to sue. Your reckless words put my family in danger, Kimmel wrote. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York.
3: Lawyers for Donald Trump say they will appeal the Maine Secretary of State's decision to pull his name from the state's presidential primary ballot. The Maine official says that she based her decision on the U.S. Constitution. She alleges that Trump engaged in insurrection on January 6th. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Provost Alan Garber will be the interim leader of Harvard. He'll take over the school now that Claudine Gay has stepped down. She resigned yesterday following her congressional testimony last year on anti-Semitism on campus. She also faced growing allegations of plagiarism in her academic work. Harvard ruled those allegations did not amount to research mis- misconduct. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, some critics say the university was holding its president to lower academic standards than its students.
4: Omar Haik is a physician and faculty member at Harvard Medical School. He describes the pattern of duplication in Gay's work as reckless and says her resignation as president was the right thing to do.
2: I think Harvard should
1: hold presidents to higher standards than they hold their faculty, and they should hold their faculty to
2: higher standards than they hold their students, who are still learning and still learning how to write academic papers.
4: Gay will return to her faculty position as a professor of political science. Her six-month tenure as president is the shortest in the school's history. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Massachusetts is on track
0: to spend nearly $1 billion on emergency shelter space by the end of June. That's according to a new report on the system released yesterday by the Healy administration. According to the report, the number of migrant families in need of shelter is decreasing overall. At the same time, the state's shelter wait list has increased to nearly 400 families. Buses are replacing trains along a big section of the Green Line this morning. There's no service between Kenmore Square and North Station. On the B branch, the closure extends to Babcock Street, and on the E branch it goes to Heath Street. The closures will last until January 12th.
15: It's 8:07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Deloitte. Unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at deloitte.com US slash engineering
14: advantage.
0: Four different Bruins players scored last night in the team's first win of the new year. They beat the Blue Jackets 4-1 in Columbus. The Bees will host the Pittsburgh Penguins tomorrow. The Celtics lost to the Thunder 127-123 in Oklahoma City. The Seas are now off until Friday. A cloudy start today, but we'll get more sun by this afternoon. It'll be in the mid-40s. Clouds move back in overnight. It'll be in the 20s. Cloudy tomorrow and back to the 40s. And we're keeping an eye on a potential snowstorm this weekend. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
7: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California.
9: And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. A senior Hamas leader and six other members of its armed wing were killed in an explosion in Lebanon.
7: Lebanon blames Israel, which has not claimed responsibility for the attack. It's the first such killing after Israel vowed to target Hamas officials in other countries after the militant Palestinian group's October 7th attack on Israel. And Lebanese leaders have warned that the assassination could open another front in the war on Gaza.
9: NPR's Jane Araf joins us now to discuss this from Amman Jordan. Hi, Jane. Hi, Layla. So what do we know about what happened in Lebanon?
31: According to the Lebanese government, an Israeli drone targeted an office building in a southern suburb of Beirut Tuesday. Hamas announced the explosion killed Salah al-Aruri. He was deputy head of its political bureau and one of the founders of the organization's military wing. That's significant because it's one thing to target Hamas leaders in Gaza, where mm-hmm. war between Hamas and Israel has been raging for three months. But it's another to launch attacks in the capital of another country. Israel and Hezbollah, that Iran-backed Lebanese militia, have been attacking each other across the Lebanese border since the start of the war in Gaza. But so far, they've stayed within a fairly limited zone around that border.
9: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this is really different to attack in a capital of another country. How have officials in Lebanon reacted to these killings?
31: Well, there's a lot of worry. Lebanon's Prime Minister Najib Makati has said the attack is aimed at opening a new phase in the conflict at the Lebanese border. And he's asking the UN Security Council to condemn the breach of Lebanese sovereignty. Uh, we have to note that Israel hasn't claimed responsibility for the attack, as okay. you mentioned. Mark Regev, an advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, said in an MSNBC interview that whoever did it, was not targeting Lebanon or Hezbollah. But the big danger is that Hezbollah will likely feel compelled to respond in some way. And if it does escalate, Iran, which backs Hezbollah, could get involved. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah has said in the past that any assassinations in Lebanon will incur retaliation. And he's giving a speech this evening in Lebanon. That speech to commemorate the U.S. killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad four years ago happens on an already tense anniversary. But that might give us some picture of what's ahead.
9: Okay. What more do we know about the senior Hamas leader Arouri?
31: Well, he was 57 years old, a sheikh who studied Islamic jurisprudence in the West Bank. He spent years in Israeli jail and he became one of the founders of the military wing of Hamas, which was established after the Palestinian uprising in 1987 against Israeli occupation he was deported in turkey and in lebanon importantly he was the main liaison with hezbollah he was also involved in negotiations in doha over a ceasefire in gaza and the release of israeli hostages which could complicate
9: things and very quickly i mean we talked a lot about lebanon but what's been the reaction among palestinians to this killing
31: Lots of demonstrations in the West Bank and general strikes in several West Bank cities to protest. But the day is still young, and that killing really does raise tensions around the region.
9: NPR's Jane Araf talking to us from Amman, Jordan. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. Jury selection began yesterday in a civil trial in New York that could transform the National Rifle Association, the nation's largest gun rights group.
7: Yeah, New York Attorney General Letitia James is hoping to oust longtime NRA leader Wayne LaPierre on corruption charges. He's denied any wrongdoing. Other current and former NRA leaders are also named in the suit.
9: NPR's Brian Mann is covering this and joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hey, good morning. Good morning. So, what are the accusations Wayne LaPierre is facing?
25: You know, the NRA was once one of the biggest political forces in Washington and and in state capitals around the country. The organization really succeeded for decades under LaPierre's leadership, pushing the gun control debate to the right, blocking gun control measures even after Catastrophic mass shootings like Sandy Hook and Parkland. But beginning in 2019, the organization began to unravel with internal feuds and accusations of corruption. New York's Attorney General Letitia James began investigating, and her team says they found evidence that more than $64 million in cash from NRA donors was misused by LaPierre and other leaders. The lawsuit claims the organization became a personal piggy bank, paying for things like private jet flights to the Bahamas this is a civil lawsuit so there's no risk of jail time or criminal penalties for lapierre or the three others named in the suit but if the nra loses this case lapierre could be ousted after more than 30 years at the helm and new york officials would also gain a lot more regulatory oversight over the nra's activities
9: what do Lapierre and the nra say about these claims
25: from the outset they've argued that this is an attempt to silence and weaken a conservative pro gun group basically they say it's a political attack by a democratic attorney general the NRA tried repeatedly to have this case dismissed on those grounds, but their arguments have been rejected by appeals courts, so now we're going to trial. It is important to note that this case and the growing controversy surrounding Pierre have already really crippled the NRA. Since the lawsuit was filed in 2020, they've lost millions of members. The NRA shut down their juggernaut media operation, even attempted once to file for bankruptcy. And LaPierre, who's 74 years old now, you know, he used to be a really high-profile player in American politics, courted by presidents, and his personal influence has clearly waned because of all of this.
9: Okay, so it seems like the NRA is back on its heels here, facing serious legal peril. How has that affected the wider debate over gun rights and
25: gun safety? Yeah, this is interesting. Before the NRA was hit by internal dissent and these legal troubles, a lot of their beliefs about gun regulations had really been adopted wholesale by the Republican Party and by many of the GOP's core voters. So while the NRA's direct influence has faded, we haven't seen big changes to the politics of gun control uh, despite the growing number of mass shootings in America, daily gun violence in some cities and and also polls showing broad public support for things like universal background checks. The GOP's largely stuck to their argument that almost all gun regulations violate the second amendment. So the NRA is a shadow of itself as this case goes to trial, but the NRA's ideas, they're still incredibly influential.
9: NPR's Brian Mann. Thanks for your reporting, Brian. Thank you. The search is on for a new president of Harvard University.
7: Yeah, six months after she took the job, Claudine Gay, Harvard's first black president, resigned yesterday. She's been taking a lot of heat for her comments to a congressional committee about anti-Semitism on campus and accusations of plagiarism in her past academic work.
9: NPR's Tovia Smith has been following the story and she joins us now. Hi, Tovia. Hi there. So what was it that pushed Gay to resign all these weeks later after the congressional hearing?
32: Well, it seems it was these multiple allegations of plagiarism that ultimately brought her down. Um, There was, of course, fierce backlash to her testimony last month after she said that calls— for genocide against Jews would not necessarily violate campus rules. But at that point, Harvard still had her back. Things really seem to have changed this week when we learned of even more allegations that she lifted chunks of language without attribution. In her resignation statement, Gay said, it was difficult beyond words to have doubt cast on not only her commitment to confronting hate, but also now on her scholarly rigor. And she said she's resigning so as not to be a distraction.
9: Now, I know this is happening during Harvard's winter break. And so there's not really anyone on campus. What what kind of reaction are you hearing?
32: Well, it's split. There are those who've been calling for Gay's resignation all along who say they're thrilled now that she's finally gone. That includes a Harvard grad student I spoke to named Shabbos Kestenbaum.
2: Whether it was her disastrous congressional testimony, whether it was her inability to enforce policies about anti-Semitism on campus or whether it was creating a hostile culture at Harvard where people don't feel that they have the ability to exchange ideologies that are not in favor at the moment. Just time and time again, she did the wrong thing.
32: I'll add that many people who've called for Gay's ouster have said that Harvard's problem is not a single person, but a culture. And Mm. that was also echoed by Elise Stefanik, uh, the congresswoman who grilled Gay and the presidents of Penn and MIT at that hearing. Okay, so how much do those comments from Stefanik about Harvard actually point to a bigger,
9: broader political battle here?
32: Very much. As one faculty member I spoke to put it, this is not about Harvard. It's about New Hampshire and Iowa. Or as another put it, um, the committee is using the pretext of fighting anti-Semitism to actually fight DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm. as well as to fight how schools approach things like race and gender. I spoke with Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed, who called gay's resignation a terrible moment for higher ed.
2: That is the witch hunt that is unfolding right now, where the argument has now been extended in Claudine Gay as a first Black woman, as a diversity hire, who is supposedly unqualified as proof that Harvard had lowered its standards and was being ruined from within. And that is not going to stop at Harvard.
32: Gay herself noted in her statement that she's faced personal attacks, um, quote, fueled by racial animus, and Harvard's board also cited racist vitriol directed at her. Mm. So now that Gay is out, what happens next? Who leads Harvard?
9: The battle over what speech is protected on campus?
32: Yeah, Gay stays at Harvard as a tenured faculty member and an interim president takes her job until a permanent one is found. Uh, But no, don't expect her resignation to be the end of it, uh, either in terms of the tussle over what's taught on college campuses or um, on where to draw the line between protected speech and hate speech on campus.
9: NPR's Tovia Smith. Thanks,
32: Tovia. Thank you.
7: This afternoon on All Things Considered, Hollywood generated $9 billion of ticket sales in North America last year, in large part due to the double whammy of blockbuster movies known as Barbenheimer. But after the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer, revenues are expected to be down sharply this year. To hear the story, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News.
0: Get the latest on the resignation of Harvard's president all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR app and at WBUR.org. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, as New York, Denver, and Chicago struggle to accommodate busloads of arriving migrants seeking shelter, we'll hear from the mayor of Erie, Pennsylvania, who says Rust Belt cities would welcome those migrants. It's 820. I'm Robin Young.
14: Colorado Republicans were the ones who filed suit to get former President Trump excluded from that ballot. Lead plaintiff Norma Anderson will join us to explain why she believes her party's leading candidate does not deserve to be president. She says, among other things, Trump is too close to Russia's Putin. That's next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Partly cloudy skies will gradually clear for a sunny afternoon. Today, highs will be in the low 40s. Clouds move back in tonight as temperatures fall to a low around 30. A similar day tomorrow. Overcast skies gradually clear for a mostly sunny day with highs in the low 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating gas and abdominal discomfort more at alignprobiotics.com and from listeners like you who donate to this npr station
9: it's morning edition from npr news i'm leila Fadel.
7: enemy Martinez. The Biden administration is recommending the drug enforcement agency significantly lower federal restrictions on marijuana by demoting it from a schedule one to a schedule three drug. Now the DEA defines schedule one drugs as those with no medical use and a higher potential for abuse, meaning weed was grouped with drugs such as heroin joining us now to talk about what these potential changes to federal drug policy actually mean is attorney howard sklamberg he focuses on compliance with food and drug administration policy and served as the agency's top official on a variety of issues including cannabis Uh, howard so legalization advocates have been trying to change the federal classification for decades um what happens if cannabis is approved as a schedule three drug
28: Uh, good morning. Well, for a lot of purposes, things will not change. In other words, the state programs out there on medical marijuana, the state programs on recreational marijuana will continue. Um, The biggest change is that the tax law uh, will change regarding marijuana companies. Um, And specifically, marijuana companies will, like all other companies, be able to deduct as business expenses items related to marijuana right now as a schedule one substance if you're a marijuana company you can't deduct as an expense for example the costs of the of the of the plant and the cultivation and everything else that goes into the business which is a big effect
7: do you think the perception would change i think it's it's definitely changed in the last few years for sure but would it uh, make a big difference there
28: i think it will con- it will continue to change uh, it has changed and i think this will accelerate it um it has an important symbolic effect because you know, what, what changing from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 says is the federal government saying, wait a minute, the, the public health risks uh, regarding cannabis are less than we had thought you know, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does have an important symbolic effect um, and I think will be used by advocates for further steps in the future.
7: Now, recreational use uh, has been legalized in 24 states, and more could join as the uh, issue is expected to appear on a, a lot of ballots in 2024. Howard, does lowering the federal classification matter if you're driving through a state
28: where marijuana is illegal? No, it does not. Okay. Uh, and that's an important, uh, important thing for people to remember. The, the overall federal law is still that um, marijuana is an illegal controlled substance, and the federal government doesn't enforce that by and large, uh, against possession. But the state laws will remain in effect, and people have to obey the state laws.
7: Now, when it comes to the taxes, as you mentioned earlier, does a lower classification mean for national access to study the effects of cannabis?
28: The the ability to do research, um, clinical research, is not really affected by the change in schedule. Um, okay. And the, the federal government has very much encouraged research into clinical trials and to other uses of marijuana, you know, for years. And I think that's going to continue.
7: Okay. Now cannabis business owners are are concerned that big pharmaceutical companies might jump in and take over this market. Are we going to start to see maybe gummies and other edibles at our
28: local pharmacies possibly? I really, uh, really do not see that as a risk at all. Uh, first of all, the, by changing the scheduling for, from schedule one to schedule three, The overall environment and legal framework for doing research remains the same. Uh, And the fact is for a pharmaceutical company to get an approved drug for cannabis, they have to invest a lot of money into clinical trials and they have to get an approval for a specific use. So in other words, when you get a drug approved, it's not just here are gummy bears, use them for what you would like. Our drug approval system is based on evidence related to specific uses of a drug. And the, the economics did not support that beforehand, and I don't think we'll support that going forward. What do you
7: think, Howard, it would take for cannabis to be completely decriminalized? And actually, maybe the first question should be, should it be?
28: Well, I think uh, it's it certainly headed in that direction. And I think that most advocates, and I would agree with them, think you need comprehensive federal legislation on this. I mean, if you take a step back and you are you you know, from a foreign country, And you would say, wait a minute, we have a patchwork of laws. It's illegal federally, but it's not really enforced. There are state laws here and there. Uh, There's a need for a a comprehensive, uniform federal legislation that addresses uh, what is legal and what regulations apply and what safety rules apply. Howard Sclamberg
7: is a partner at Arnold and Porter Law Firm. He focuses on FDA compliance and policy. Howard, thanks. Thank you very much.
9: Puffy jackets are great for keeping kids warm in winter, but a bulky coat and a car seat can be a dangerous pairing. As winter sets in, we've gathered some tips on car seat safety. NPR's Deba Motasham has the story.
33: It's normal to bundle a child up during the cold winter months, but caregivers might not realize that a thick puffy coat or too many layers under a car seat harness can actually be a potential risk.
6: Those layers and that puffiness will compress during a crash, and it introduces additional slack in the child's harness system in their car seat.
33: That's Emily Thomas. She's the auto safety manager at the Consumer Reports Auto Test Center. She says that the additional gap allows the child to move more in the event of a crash, even potentially moving outside the protection of their car seat.
6: So it's really important to make sure that their harness is nice and snug for every ride. And to do that, there's a very simple but effective test, called the pinch test. So you take your thumb and your forefinger and you slide it over your child's shoulder where the harness strap is. If any of the harness strap comes between your thumb and forefinger, then you know that you need to tighten the harness a little bit more.
33: Otherwise, Thomas says you always want to double check the seat's installation in the vehicle.
6: It shouldn't move more than one inch side to side or front to back if you pull on the install.
33: And if the car seat faces forward, always attach that top tether.
6: It helps to reduce the forward motion of the car seat during a crash.
33: Ultimately, while it might be inconvenient to take the coat off and on each time you're going for a ride, it's worth it. But a child doesn't have to be chilly for the sake of safety.
6: In order to still keep them warm, you can drape a blanket over them after they've been properly harnessed, or you can put their coat on them backwards on top of their harness like a blanket.
33: Diba Motasham, NPR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. WBUR education reporter Carrie Young joins us to share a reaction to Harvard President Claudine Gay's resignation. It's 8.29. Coming to City Space next Monday, chef Jack Zhang. He's become well-known on social media for getting his two-year-old son to love all kinds of food. Zhang will share advice for parents of picky eaters and talk about his new book. Get details and tickets at wbur.org events.
23: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Lawmakers in Maine start their regular legislative session today, and the fight over Donald Trump's name on the state's primary ballot continues. Republicans want to impeach the Democratic Secretary of State, Chenna Bellows, over her decision to boot Trump from the ballot, but she says she was just following the Constitution and the law.
4: I reviewed the weight of the evidence in the hearing and made the determination That Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does apply to the president and that the events of January 6th were not only tragic, uh, but qualified as an insurrection and happened at the behest of and with the knowledge and support of the outgoing president. Trump is
23: appealing her decision. House Speaker Mike Johnson spent the night in San Antonio, and today he's to lead a large group of House Republicans on a visit to the U.S. border with Mexico. And pairs, Giles Snyder has more.
5: Speaker Johnson is at the head of some 60 House Republicans who are expected to accompany him to the border at Eagle Pass. The visit to the border will be Johnson's first as speaker. And comes as Senate negotiators are hashing out a deal that links changes in border policy as a condition for further aid for Ukraine. The talks have dragged on for weeks.
23: NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. U.S. futures contracts are trading lower at this hour. Dow futures down two-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures down a half percent. This is NPR. Montana's attorney general is appealing a judge's order that blocked a TikTok ban from taking effect in the state. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, a federal judge prevented the ban from starting on First Amendment grounds.
26: Montana's first-in-the-nation-complete ban of TikTok within the state's borders was blocked in late November. A judge ruled that the law oversteps the state's power and tramples on residents' constitutional rights. The U.S. District Judge Donald Malloy wrote in his order that state officials seemed, quote, more interested in targeting China's ostensible role in TikTok than with protecting Montana consumers. TikTok is owned by Beijing-based tech giant ByteDance. Now Montana is appealing the order. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is still in talks with TikTok to allay concerns national security officials have with the app. Critics say China could, in theory, use the app to spread pro-China misinformation. Bobby Allen, NPR News.
23: Despite a recent drop in home loan interest rates, mortgage applications were down this week. The Mortgage Bankers Association says applications were down a seasonally adjusted 9.4 percent this week from two weeks earlier. The 30-year note inched higher last week, ending 2023 at 6.76 percent, but that's down from a recent peak of 7.9 percent in October. The MBA says the housing market is still plagued by a lack of homes for sale. I'm Janine Herbst, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoy. Lawmakers returned to Beacon Hill today from the holiday break. As WBW's Walter Ruthman reports, advocates for gun reform hope state lawmakers come to an agreement on a sweeping new gun control package in the new year.
30: The Massachusetts House passed major gun reform legislation in October, which would strengthen the state's assault weapons ban, limit where guns can be carried, and crack down on unregistered ghost guns. All eyes are now on the state Senate. Senate leaders have yet to reveal their own proposal, but say they also want to pass restrictions on ghost guns. Advocates for gun control argue the state can be a national leader by making its already strict gun laws even stricter. Gun groups oppose any new reforms as an infringement on the Second Amendment. Legislators must report any proposed legislation out of committee by the first full week of February. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: More than 170,000 state residents have been affected by a data breach at Bunker Hill Community College. According to a state report, the breach last year exposed Social Security, credit card, and driver's license information. School officials say the issue was likely a cyber attack. Some Metro West public transit service is free for the next three months. The free rides are part of a state-funded pilot program to encourage ridership. The program includes the 15 bus systems that make up the Metro West Regional Transit Authority. Riders can use a regular catch card bus pass to board. Any money on the card will remain untouched until April.
13: It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast.
0: The Celtics' six-game winning streak is over. They lost to the Thunder 127-123 last night in Oklahoma City. The Bruins beat the Blue Jackets 4-1 to last night in Columbus, and Boston's new professional women's hockey team makes its debut tonight. They'll host Minnesota at the Saugus Center in Lowell. Mostly cloudy this morning, but skies will slowly clear for a sunny afternoon. We'll have highs in the low 40s. It grows overcast again tonight and temperatures will be around 30. Skies gradually clear tomorrow morning and we'll eventually have a mostly sunny day with highs back in the low 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station,
9: it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington,
7: D.C. And Amir Martinez in Los Angeles, California. For months, President Biden has been running for president quietly, but that's about to change in a significant way. We're joined now by NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith, who has new insight into Biden's campaign strategy. Tamara, so we said uh, that this new active campaign is about to start. What is it going to look like?
10: Well, this saturday on january 6th which is the anniversary of the Capitol insurrection biden will hold a campaign event in valley forge pennsylvania where he will according to the campaign lay out the stakes for the election for american democracy and freedom in a location with revolutionary war symbolism and then on monday he'll visit the mother Emanuel ame church in charleston south carolina That historically black church was the site of a white supremacist shooting in 2015. And there, Biden will talk about another motivating theme for his campaign, pushing back against extremism and political violence. And he'll draw a line from the Mother Emanuel shooting to Charlottesville and to January 6th. And then later in the month, Vice President Harris will go out to uh, the swing state of Wisconsin to mark the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And she will tie the Dobbs decision and erosion of access to reproductive health care directly to former President Trump.
7: All right. So democracy, freedom, extremism, political violence. I mean, it sounds like a pretty stark message coming from the president's reelection. I mean, is that going to be really the focus of this campaign?
10: Yeah, uh, Obama-era hope and change are very much in the rearview mirror. Uh, The Biden campaign and the president himself uh, see this moment as uniquely dire. So last night, the campaign held a call to talk about their message and strategy in 2024. And the message was hard to miss. They are running this campaign like democracy depends on it.
22: The threat
30: that Donald Trump posed in 2020 to American democracy has grown even more dangerous than
26: it was when President Biden ran last time.
17: The choice for the American people in November 2024 will be about protecting our democracy and every American's fundamental freedoms.
30: The leading candidate of a major party in the United States is running for president so that he can systematically dismantle and destroy our democracy.
10: That was Deputy Campaign Manager Quentin Fulks, Campaign Manager Julie Chavez Rodriguez, and Communications Director Michael Tyler. And their message might as well have been written in neon. It isn't subtle. Um, And, you know, Biden isn't the only candidate you are going to hear this year saying democracy is at stake. The Trump campaign is also saying uh, that democracy is at stake and Joe Biden is the real threat, Uh, though experts in Democratic erosion are sounding alarms about Trump and not about Biden. But Trump and his campaign are speaking to uh, concerns that you hear from uh, far right Republican voters.
7: All right. So both gearing up for a rematch, obviously. Is there a risk, though, for President Biden in staking so much on running against Trump?
10: You know, the Biden team also uh, often uses phrases like Trump and his MAGA allies. Uh, but the real passion among Democratic voters is about Trump. Uh, and that isn't to say that Biden won't talk about his legislative and policy accomplishments, which Democrats are proud of. But they need this to be a choice, not a referendum, especially while voters are still pretty skeptical of Biden's re-election bid.
7: NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Key, thanks a lot. You're welcome. For more than a year now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been sending busloads of migrants to cities such as Denver, Chicago, Philadelphia, and New York. It's part of a program that Governor calls Operation Lone Star, and it's led to emergency declarations and pleas for federal assistance from mayors as the volume of migrants strains local resources. In contrast, other cities such as Topeka, Kansas, Dayton, Ohio, and Erie, Pennsylvania say they have the room, they have the space, and are ready to welcome documented migrants. Joe Schember is the mayor of Erie. He joins us now. Mayor, so why should migrants consider Erie for their home in the United States?
19: You know, The topic of immigration is a very important one here in the city of Erie. In fact, since I took office in uh, 2018, so I just finished my sixth year, my team and I at City Hall have been working very hard every day on our vision to make Erie a community of choice where we celebrate six things. And we I campaigned on this seven years ago, and we, we live by it. These five items that, that we, that we want to celebrate. First, is our uh, rich, natural, cultural diversity that we have here in Erie. Second is our welcoming, vibrant neighborhoods. Third is our world-class downtown and Lake Erie Bayfront. And fifth is our excellent education for everyone. And so that was fourth. And fifth is the abundance of good family-sustaining jobs. So having new Americans come in and settle here is, is very, very important. You know, we swear yeah. in, uh, Ten times a year at the federal courthouse. I'll stop there for a minute. Yeah, yeah th- that ahead.
7: last thing you mentioned, the jobs. Um, does Erie need people to fill jobs? What jobs are you talking about?
19: We do, and you know, it kind of surprised me when I took when I took office as mayor. How many job openings there are? There's a lot of possibilities, and Erie went through the kind of change that I think most cities in, in the United States went through, where we had these great factory jobs along 12th Street, and that's where almost everyone in Erie worked. Those jobs went away, they don't exist anymore. And so Erie was run down for a while, but now it's turning around and and we're we're moving it forward. In fact, since uh, over the last about 50 years, we've lost uh, about 40,000 people in population. Most of them had just moved out to the suburbs of Erie, but they left the city. And now we're trying to turn that around and bring more people in. How do
7: your constituents feel about uh, what you're proposing?
19: I think the vast majority of them are very supportive of it uh, because we, we swear in about, we've sworn in about 60 groups of new Americans. There's about 15 each group in the six years I've been mayor. We do 10 of those a year. uh, And we've had people, We've, in, in the last 10 years, we've sworn in 3,337 new U.S. citizens from 110 different countries all over the world. And we're very proud of that. And it's something that probably most people think about Erie. They don't think about the cultural diversity we have and how much we value it. But we really do. And we're very, very proud of that.
7: Now, does your city have the resources in place to house and support new migrants while they maybe try to get on their feet if they were to move there?
19: Yes, we do. We have a lot of, uh, of co- companies, nonprofits that, that work on this. We have some government agencies that support this as well and help people get settled, both state and local I- individuals. Uh, we can, of course, always use more, but we're very proud of what we've got to let people, help people settle in and become part of Erie. And in a generation or two, you don't even know the difference from, from other people.
7: One more thing quickly, yep. Mayor, uh, how do Republicans in Erie feel about what you're saying? You
19: know, Erie is a heavily Democratic town. I happen to be a Democrat, but right. I think most Republicans support us in this as well, which I'm, I'm proud of and I try to work with. We have a Republican county executive who I try to work with very closely as well because we're both leading the, the city and the county and we need to work together.
7: Erie, Pennsylvania Mayor Joe Schember, thank you very much, Mayor. Thanks for having me on. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the debate brewing in California over proposed reparations for black residents descended from enslaved ancestors. Skies gradually clear this morning and will eventually have a sunny day in the low 40s. Temperatures fall to around 30 tonight and it'll grow cloudy again. Tomorrow morning, those clouds slowly move out. By afternoon, it'll be mostly sunny and in the mid 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, the latest forecasts show Massachusetts could finally get snow this weekend. That's good news for the region's ski areas. There's been minimal snowfall so far this season. Local ski areas tell WBUR's Zeninjor, and Wameka they're doing the best they can with what the weather has brought them.
15: It's all about man-made snow at many Massachusetts ski areas. Chris Stimson is the public relations manager for Wachusett Mountain ski area. He says the current temps are great for making snow, which can provide a base for skiing.
2: We are looking forward to the natural snow as soon as it comes. We're going to be making snow all week to build up that base. And then once we get a little fluffy stuff on top, it should be really nice.
15: Stimson says 80 percent of Wachusett Mountain is already open for skiers and snowboarders. The Blue Hills ski area says it plans to open this weekend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sininjore and Wameka.
0: Watertown-based Tome Biosciences is buying a San Francisco biotech company. The gene editing lab is paying $65 million to buy Replace Therapeutics. Tome plans to pay an additional $185 million if the technology from Replace is effective.
15: It's 845. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org afterthefact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation, At ecmcfoundation.org.
0: This is WBUR's morning edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Harvard President Claudine Gay has resigned. She faced a public backlash for comments she made at a congressional hearing last year. More recently, she also faced accusations of plagiarism. WBUR's education team heard back from two staff members at Harvard who say partisan politics played a worrying role in Gay's resignation. WBUR education reporter Carrie Young joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So what did these staff members tell you?
20: Yeah, so the education team spoke with two people, and they both told us that they were really concerned about how there's this feeling that gay is stepping down as a result of, like, mob rule. Ryan Enos is a professor of government at Harvard, and he told me that You know, while he hasn't always agreed with her uh, policies or choices during her tenure, the way it's ending is really worrying.
1: And regardless of what you think of the merits of her positions on international issues or what you think of her, of the accusations against her around plagiarism, those are all things that need careful debate and careful consideration. And this was certainly not an example of that.
20: You know, and he also went on to say that he felt like the congressional hearings about anti-Semitism on college campuses were kind of a trap, that the presidents who testified were really used to make a political point against universities, which he thinks is, is pretty scary because it's kind of attacking these schools' independence. Is it possible to separate out the reaction
0: to Gay's congressional testimony and the allegations of plagiarism? In other words, were these accusations of plagiarism alone serious enough to force her
20: out? So that's a good question. And I don't know if these two staff members had a, had a really good answer to that or, or knew that for sure. But what they did know was that while accusations of plagiarism are very serious, they, if you're going to get to the bottom of it and make A good choice about whether to keep or terminate somebody. Just like we heard earlier, it requires careful consideration, you know, time to investigate. And that's really not what happened here.
0: Claudine Gay was, of course, Harvard's first black president, only its second female president. Did you hear concerns about her being treated differently because of her race or gender?
20: Yeah, both of the staff members that we talked to did mention that during our interviews. One of the staff members was Dr. Jaime Sanchez Jr., he's a postdoc fellow at Harvard with a PhD in history from Princeton. And he said, you know, yes, there there is some additional scrutiny that comes kind of naturally with being the president of Harvard, with kind of how famous it is just in general. But he still thinks that gay faced more scrutiny than someone else might have from a different background in her position.
22: Anyone in a leadership position from a marginalized group has to prove themselves twice as much, right? Because there are already stereotypes and assumptions going against you. And so certainly that's something I imagine Claudine Gay had uh, up against her from the beginning of her appointment.
20: Now, Enos, the government professor, echoed that. He pointed to the fact that other university presidents around the country have not faced near the amount of scrutiny that Gay has over her colleges and her personal like, official response to the war between Israel and Hamas.
0: What's next now for Harvard? Who's in charge now?
20: So who's in charge now is Alan Garber. He has been the school's provost, so he's going to step up to become the interim president. As for who takes the job permanently next, we don't really have a lot of good insight on that yet. But I think Enos, the government professor, again, he described the qualities that the person needs to have really well.
1: Whoever Harvard chooses to lead, it must be lead this institution, must be willing to take those kinds of arrows, those kinds of slings and arrows, and to be resistant to that type of pressure, because it's extremely dangerous if universities allow themselves to um, bow to political pressure like that.
20: Now, I will be curious to see how Harvard and really other universities move on after this, like what lessons are they gonna take from it? And so that's something that we'll be looking out for on our team.
0: WPOR education reporter Carrie Young, thank you very much. You're welcome. Coming up at the top of the hour on WB War, it's the BBC News hour. They'll have the latest on the killing of the second in command of Hamas and a major strike by doctors in Britain. It's 851.
14: I'm Robin Young. Colorado Republicans were the ones who filed suit to get former President Trump excluded from that ballot. Lead plaintiff Norma Anderson will join us to explain why she believes her party's leading candidate does not deserve to be president. She says, among other things, Trump is too close to Russia's Putin. That's next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Donald Trump is appealing the decision to bar him from the presidential primary ballot in Maine. U.S. House Speaker Mike Johnson will tour the U.S.-Mexico border today, calling for stricter immigration policies. And more flight cancellations are expected at Tokyo's Haneda Airport following yesterday's deadly collision between two planes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Low 40s today under cloudy skies that will gradually clear. Around 30 tonight and the clouds return overnight. Then skies clear tomorrow morning and we'll have a mostly sunny day back in the low 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston.
29: The most populous state debates paying reparations to the descendants of enslaved people.
34: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Betterment, the automated investing platform that helps make it easy to be invested for the long term. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers. Secure. Hallucination-free. LLM agnostic. IP
29: liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, call it a post-New Year's hangover. Call it buyer's remorse. Markets started 2024 with a course reversal, especially focused on big tech companies. The Nasdaq fell 1.6% yesterday, the first trading day of the year. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more.
6: The end-of-year rally was powered in large part by so-called Magnificent 7 stocks and investors had second thoughts about some of those. Apple lost ground after Barclays downgraded the company's shares to an effective sell recommendation over worries about sluggish iPhone and Mac sales. Nvidia shares more than tripled last year thanks to advances in artificial intelligence. Its shares declined yesterday as well. A lot of the end-of-the-year stock rally was based on expectations that interest rate cuts would start as early as March. Later today, the Federal Reserve releases minutes of its last policy meeting. Investors want clues as to whether those expectations were too optimistic or just optimistic enough. I'm Safa for Marketplace.
29: NASDAQ futures are down half a percent right now, and the bond market has also been dropping in 2024, pushing the 10-year interest rate up to 3.97%.
34: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a the firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help and by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information, including application at progressive.com careers.
29: In this new year, California lawmakers are set for an intense debate on economic reparations for black residents descended from enslaved ancestors in 2020 california became the first state to form a reparations task force last june the group issued an 1100 page report for the state legislature to take up state senator stephen bradford a democrat has now introduced a bill that would create a california agency to carry out reparations when or if they get approved reporter lee hawkins has a
22: series on reparations this week the california reparations task force spent three years studying and developing reparations proposals California State Senator Stephen Bradford believes a government agency is the next step in the process before the California legislature starts looking at exact dollar amounts or benefits.
18: That's what makes it real once you have a dedicated governmental entity that says, okay, we're charged with delivering, identifying who's eligible, and determining what uh, reparations look like.
22: The agency would be set up to atone for California's history of slavery and the institutional racism that is illuminated by the task force's report. For example, during the gold rush starting in 1848, up to 1,500 enslaved black people were forcibly brought to California by southern miners seeking fortune. Two years later, California became a U.S. state, technically a free state, but miners exploited legal loopholes to sustain slavery and even with abolition, racial violence and systemic racial injustices continued throughout the 20th century.
2: We identified basically 12 areas that that we saw the state had engaged in producing harms against African American community.
22: Jovan Scott Lewis is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He was also a member of the state's reparations task force.
2: Things like property removal, to issues like mass incarceration and contemporary gentrification, right, which really are the, the kind of consequences of what we can think of as the practice of redlining that began in the 1930s.
22: The task force cited disparities in housing, health care, criminal justice, and business ownership, and it provided a formula for calculating the resulting economic losses. But the report doesn't mention specific payment amounts for reparations, which is the most controversial aspect. Last March, a San Francisco reparations committee proposed a $5 million compensation package for each qualifying black adult. This, a number that California State Senator Bradford clarifies, did not originate from the overarching state task force.
18: What we identified, again, was the wealth gap between white families and black families, again, at $360,000. So that was our starting point. So I think the $5 million that you hear right now, that's just a distraction. That's those naysayers who are finding any reason not to support reparations.
22: Richard Rothstein, who wrote The Color of Law about government-enforced segregation in the U.S., doubts whether reparations for black Americans could even be passed in California or anywhere.
29: They're talking about billions of dollars paid to African-Americans in California. It's not going to happen. I agree with them completely, but they're talking about something that is much more politically unrealistic than going after specific crimes that have been committed in violation of our constitution.
22: Rothstein believes filing lawsuits that address specific acts of economic discrimination, such as redlining or land displacement, would be more effective than the reparations proposals. But while there may be disagreements about what's politically viable, there's one reality that people on all sides of this debate can agree on. Any path to reparations would be paved with complexity.
18: It's gonna be a lot of challenges, not only legislatively, to get our colleagues on board, but it's public opinion of just showing why this is important, why this is needed, and more importantly, why this is owed to these descendants, again, that built this country.
29: Senator Bradford's bill could face a vote in the California legislature this year. Our series this week is called Golden Promises, the battle over slavery reparations in California. Our coverage with reporter Lee Hawkins is also accumulating online at marketplace.org. And we mentioned those seeds of a reparation plan for specifically the city of San Francisco that would provide millions for each eligible black adult. Last month, that city's mayor, London Breed, announced spending reductions that would cut the budget for that city's Office of Reparations. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM. American public media.
0: Clearing skies mean it'll be sunny by this afternoon and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. It's 33 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next.
15: Hi, I'm Lauren
9: Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters
13: to you. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars.